be continuing in our study of judges, and we're going to see that things, well, we've seen things go from bad to worse, right? Things have gotten pretty bad for Israel, but it's going to get even worse today. As we take a look at the aftermath of a life that was absolutely wasted for the most part. See, a life which is not dedicated to bringing glory to God is tragic because it's an absolutely wasted life. See, life is is a precious gift. It's a sacred gift from God. And to spend it, to invest our time, our resources, our energy on things that don't glorify God, on anything other than glorifying God, is to invest that gift, our lives, in something that is merely temporal. Things that come and go, things that won't be there for eternity. Nevertheless, there are consequences of wasting a life that continue well beyond our lifetimes. Imagine, if you will, for just a moment, that at the end of your life, uh, you're, you're welcomed into the presence of Jesus. You're, you're, you go to heaven. He saved you by his grace through faith in him. And after being welcomed into heaven, you're brought into your very own media room. Jamie would love that, wouldn't he? You're brought into your own media room where you're instructed to make a video of your life which highlights all the things that you did for God throughout your time here on earth. And you are the editor. You can cut out as much as you want. Now let me ask you this. How much of that film is going to be edited out? How much of that film is going to end up on the cutting floor? And how much is going to end up on the screen? How many scenes will depict you making the most of your life by doing God-honoring things, God-glorifying things? How many scenes will get cut because they've depicted you living life for yourself and for temporary things? How long would your video be? I mean, you've got all of eternity to go through this and, and edit it and review it and edit it and review it and edit it until you've got you know the, the, a good movie, right? So even if the movie's like, 80 years long, what are you going to do for the next 10 million years, you know? But honestly, on one hand, I, I kind of scare myself when I think about things like that, when I, when I present scenarios like that, because I, I know that if I were in that situation, I would find far too much of my time has been wasted. Despite my best efforts, far too much of my time is wasted, and a good portion of my life will likely continue to be wasted, Because I'm a sinner, just like everybody else. Praise God for grace, right? Praise God for grace. Now, as we continue our study in the book of Judges, keep that all in mind. Because we've seen things go from bad to worse. We saw the Israelites being oppressed by the Midianites because God sold them into the hands of the Midianites as a result of their continued faithlessness toward him and breaking the covenant that they had with him. The story of Gideon was tragic because, let's face it, Man, a lot of his life was spent on temporary things. A lot of that proverbial film is going on the cutting floor. A lot of his life was wasted on exalting himself rather than glorifying God. A lot of his life was wasted on temporary things. And I could say the same thing about myself. And if you look at your life, you might be able to say the same thing about your life as well. Gideon knew better, though. We know better too. But Gideon also knew better. 
When the people asked Gideon to be their king, he politely uh, and theologically cor- gave a theologically correct answer. He declined because he knew that that was a position that only belonged to the Lord. Only the Lord could rightfully reign over his people. But while he didn't want to be called king, he certainly demanded that he be treated like one. And whether he liked it or not, his life had a lasting effect, an effect that lasted beyond his own lifetime, as he had 70 sons with his many wives, and he had an illegitimate son with a concubine. Now, this is kind of telling. Gideon named his illegitimate son Abimelech, which means, my father is the king. What does that tell us about how Gideon viewed himself? Or maybe it's how Gideon's concubine... Abimelech's mother viewed him, or maybe it's both. But Gideon's story concluded at the end of chapter 8, and the story of his legacy continues into the next chapter as we learn about the aftermath of a life that was, at least for a good part, we know that he did repent, but for a good part of his life, it was wasted on things like self-exaltation. Now, before we, uh, before we start, before we, we crack open the ninth chapter of Judges, I should warn you that, yeah, things are going to get pretty bleak. Uh, in this whole chapter. Uh, If the previous story about Gideon was a black eye in Israel's history, chapter 9 is a proverbial kick to the mouth that, you know, knocks most of the teeth out. This is going to be the first entire chapter in the book, in the book of Judges, in which God is never once mentioned by his covenant name, the Lord. And that should tell us quite a bit about what we can pro- probably expect in the chapter to come. So consider yourselves forewarned. Let's start with verses 1 and 2. We read, Now Abimelech, the son of Jerubbaal, went to Shechem, to his mother's relatives, and said to them and to the whole clan of his mother's family, Say in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, which is better for you, that all 70 of the sons of Jerubbaal rule over you, or that one rule over you? Remember also that I am your bone and flesh. Hint, hint, right? Chapter 9 takes place in Shechem. And if you don't know what Shechem is, it's an extremely significant, extremely important place in Israel. In fact, this was the same place where God had appeared to Abraham to tell him that this was the promised land that he had arrived in the land that he would give to his offspring. In Genesis chapter 12, verses 6 and 7, we read, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the place of Morah. At that place, at at that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he, Abram, built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him in this place where this all takes place today. How significant is the geography here? How significant is the location? It's huge. It's huge. This is the location of the first formal place of worship in the land. Later in Israel's history, it would also be the first place where Abram's descendants would gather to worship God as they entered into the land under Joshua's leadership. So this place is so significant. This is, this is one of the most important places in all of Israel. It represents God's providence. This is their equivalent of Plymouth Rock. Imagine that you had a group of Americans who decided to, to get together and to meet at Plymouth Rock. And they decided that it was time that we as Americans reinstitute good old-fashioned tyranny. 
Let's bring in a king. And you know what? While we're at it, let's, let's reinstitute slavery. Can you imagine the outrage? Because Plymouth Rock is, you know, obviously significant. That's where, that's where the forefathers landed, right? When they came to, to North America. And there would be outrage if a large portion of Americans gathered there and decided to do these things. And rightfully so. We would be rightful, uh, right to, to be outraged. I mean, this is where our forefathers came to escape tyranny. So what happens here in Shechem is the equivalent. It's, it's very similar. It's the same place where they should have been freed from all worldly influence, and yet they're going to embrace worldly values more fervently, more openly than they ever had before up until this point at this location. As an illegitimate son, Abimelech stood to inherit absolutely nothing from his father. He, he was a wealthy man, obviously. He had, uh, you know, what, 45 to 50 pounds of golden earrings, uh, you know, in addition to, to his other riches. But Abimelech stood to inherit absolutely nothing. Abimelech's mother was from Shechem, which was a city in Ephraim. And that's an implication. There's an implication in there that we should catch. And that is that Abimelech was raised as an outsider. He wasn't raised with his brothers. Not only was he an outsider with his own family, but unlike his brothers who had been raised in the tribe of Manasseh, Abimelech was raised as an Ephraimite. And we should remember a couple chapters back, the Ephraimites, they were a powerful, powerful people. They had one of the most powerful armies in all of Israel, and they continued to hold a high degree of animosity. They continued to have this bitter sibling rivalry with the tribe of Manasseh, Gideon's tribe, and the tribe of his 70 sons. And that that rivalry went back to Jacob's blessing upon his sons before he died. So the last thing that an Ephraimite would want is to have somebody come out of the tribe of Manasseh and rule over them. Even worse than that, 70 people coming out of Manasseh to rule over them. And today we're going to see how Abimelech used this long-standing sibling rivalry to his advantage. He starts his plot by just going to his relatives, to to his relatives on his mother's side and all the clan of his mother's family. And he plants a seed of fear in their minds. He asks a question which is designed purely to make them afraid of that very thing happening, of 70 people coming in out of Manasseh and ruling over them. And he wants to see this, this plot spread all the way up to the leaders of the clan. And the seed is simple. Do you want all of 70's, or all 70 of Gideon's sons from the tribe of Manasseh to rule over you? Or do you want just one to rule over you? Oh, and don't forget, I'm kind of from Gideon's line, and I'm one of you guys. Now, the first thing that stands out to me about this is that this is not a position that anyone in Israel has the right to lay claim for. Even Gideon knew that the Lord, and only the Lord, has the right to reign over his people. But that's not how the nations worked. The nations that surrounded them, the nations that had infiltrated them, that's not how they operated. They had kings whose sons would automatically be the heirs to the throne as soon as the king died. And so Abimelech is putting the idea in their minds that somebody is going to come in and rule over them. Some person is going, or group of persons, is going to reign over them. Someone other than 
God. Further, Abimelech has manipulated them into fearing that the 70 legitimate sons of Gideon would even want to be kings. There's no indication that they had any desire, any aspirations to take the throne. But Abimelech puts that fear in their minds anyway. He's planted seeds of fear. He's planted seeds of bitterness while simultaneously elevating himself. Unlike the judges which had preceded him, Abimelech wasn't even appointed by God. He wasn't called by God. He wasn't raised up by God. He didn't deliver the people from oppression. He's not a judge. He he doesn't fit the profile, but he's tried to convince a bunch of Shechemites that they're going to be oppressed. Now, in the past, the oppression has come from the foreign nations, but he convinces them that the oppression is actually going to come from within, from these people that they can't stand. And his argument basically boils down to this. Wouldn't you guys rather have just one ruler? Shouldn't the one who rules serve our interests, considering who we are? Shouldn't we make sure that I'm the one who inherits the kingship in the land? His moves, his motives are so completely corrupt. He wasn't interested in serving people. He wasn't interested in serving God. He was only interested in serving himself. He was interested in gaining personal power. Now, up until this point, you know, Israel's faced oppression and and aggression from the outside, but with this one move, now there's going to be an increasing internal conflict, which, as we go through the book of Judges, is going to absolutely boil over. But this move is far more crooked. This move is far more corrupt than anything that the foreign nations that have tried to come in and oppress them have ever done against them. And so we see in the next two verses how this all plays out. Verses 3 and 4. And his mother's relatives spoke all these words on his behalf in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem. And their hearts inclined to follow Abimelech, for they said, He is our brother. And they gave him 70 pieces of silver out of the house of baal Barith. Again, that means God of the covenant. Small g, small g, small God. The house of baal Barith with which Abimelech hired worthless and reckless fellows who followed him. I think fellows must be a nice way of saying crooks. I don't know. Not only are the leaders in agreement with Abimelech, but their money goes where their heart is. Because that is always how it works. That's always how it works. You know, your money will go where your heart is. That's why Jesus continually warned people about the dangers of of money. And of course, the money wasn't even really theirs technically, but they did have control over where it went since they are the leaders of Shechem. This is money that's been left as an offering before false gods, before idols in the temple, which had been built for the sake of worshiping this false god, which had taken Yahweh's place, God's place in their hearts. And so Abimelech's rise to power isn't isn't made possible by praying to the Lord for wisdom or help or seeking God's will at all. It's driven by dirty money that's been given to an idol. And it's driven by blood, the blood of his brothers. Let's continue, verses 5 and 6. And he went to his father's house at Ophrah and killed his brothers, the sons of Jerubbaal, 70 men on one stone. 
But Jotham, the youngest son of Jerubbaal, was left, for he hid himself. And all the leaders of Shechem came together, and all Beth Milo. And they went and made Abimelech king by the oak of the pillar at Shechem. This is an ancient practice that we still see in parts of the world today. Putting to death anyone and everyone who stands in the way of the person who wants to lead. While we don't see it played out exactly like that in our country, we do see dirty politics, we do see mudslinging, we do see character assassination. His father, Gideon, murdered his fellow countrymen. Gideon was the first judge to murder his fellow countrymen. And Abimelech is now going to come in, and he's going to murder his own blood, his own family members. The nut doesn't fall far from the tree, folks. All the leaders that we've seen up until this point have governed based on being chosen by God, being equipped by God, being raised up by God. But Abimelech's authority has nothing at all to do with God. It's simply a man who's doing everything he possibly can to lay claim to whatever he can by whatever means necessary. He's going to take whatever he possibly can in life because it's a dog-eat-dog world. His father wanted to be treated like a king without actually being called king. But Abimelech willfully usurps God's rightful place of ruling over God's people. And there's so much to be learned in scriptures and in this passage about selecting a leader. But at the same time, we need to understand that when a leader is elected by the people, he's really a reflection of what the people aspire to of what the people idealize in their own minds. These are people who had a a very corrupt, a broken moral compass, and thus there isn't even the slightest sense of moral apprehension. Notice that there's no outrage among them that he would go and kill innocent flesh. They don't feel phased by that at all. It doesn't bother them at all. There's no sense of moral accountability here at all. They're more interested in power than they are in moral goodness. That's where the human heart goes, friends. More interested in power than moral goodness. So what would ever stop them from selecting a leader who also has a broken moral compass? And, you know, as frustrated as I may get from time to time with our own country's leadership, I realize that the same principle holds true for us, that the politicians who hold offices in our country are really just a reflection of the idealized morality and power of the masses. And so while I, you know, may from time to time vocally protest the what appears to be the lack of morality in our country's leadership, I understand that by doing so, what I'm really doing is protesting the moral compass, the direction that the moral compass of the people in my own country have. And with that said, it's a very dangerous time for us as Christians. Right now, in America, or in the West, it's a very dangerous time for us as Christians because there is just so much temptation And so much social pressure for us to become more concerned with living a life that pleases people than we are with pleasing God. There's media like there's never been before that drags people through the mud like never before in history. It's unprecedented how much social pressure there is to conform 
to the world's values these days. Friends, we live in a country in which the vast majority of our leaders and thus the vast majority of our fellow citizens not only approve of murdering children in the womb, but they approve of paying somebody to do it. They approve of paying somebody to murder. To assa- that's called an assassin. How many politicians are there who would say no abortion under any circumstances whatsoever? I can only think of one or two. And a few years ago, there was one who took a really firm stand publicly against abortion, even in cases of rape and incest. And even conservatives were absolutely appalled by it. But let me ask you this. Let's say that you had a five-year-old who was conceived by rape or incest. Or a four-year-old. Or a two-year-old. Or why not? A 75-year-old. Or a 34-year-old, take any age you like. Can we justify murdering that person because they were conceived by rape or incest? Can you murder a 34-year-old because they were conceived by rape or incest? Not legally. You will go to prison for the rest of your life. But if we can make an exception for the murder of a child in the womb, why can't we make one for a child outside of the womb? See, there's an inconsistency there. Their personhood, personhood in general, isn't determined by age. Personhood isn't determined by location. It's not determined by the means by which a person was conceived. But try convincing the masses that abortion is always, always wrong. As God's people, we must not value the popularity or the wit or the intelligence, or the humor, or how well-spoken somebody is when we select our leaders. God's people must seek leaders who will boldly affirm biblical truth, who lead their family in godly ways, who are patient and gentle and self-controlled, who aren't angry quickly. We don't need articulate powerful, persuasive leaders who are elected to lead for all the wrong reasons and who lead in the wrong direction. The policies that have been set forth by our nation's leaders are a reflection of the hearts of their constituents because the leaders are a reflection of the people. That's the way it is now. That's the way it's always been. In Abimelech's case, they select a godless murderer as their king because they themselves are completely godless. They don't want to need God. They don't want to be ruled over by God. They don't want to rely on God. And so they want somebody who values the same things, who doesn't want God, who doesn't want to feel like he needs God, who doesn't want to be ruled over by God. They want independence. They want the freedom to sin as they please and to be ruled over by themselves rather than by God. And while there's an important lesson here in choosing a leader, there's also a deeper application that starts with with just a simple question. To what depths are we, are, are you, willing to go to ensure your own personal success or your own personal happiness? Is your life about self gratification or is it about God's glorification? Abimelech's reign as king begins with 
the blood sacrifice of his own brothers on one stone. In other words, they were systematically murdered one at a time on one stone. But we learn that one of his brothers survives, a young man named Jotham. And there's so much irony in in all of this in his name because his name, uh, Jotham, in Hebrew you would pronounce it Yotham, which means Yah, as in Yahweh, God, is morally blameless. The opposite of Abimelech. The opposite of his actions. He's not morally blameless. God is. And so here we are in the very same place where Abraham worshipped, in the same place where Jacob put his foreign gods away, in the same place where Joshua built a pillar to witness Israel's renewal of their covenant with God. And in this very place... Israel turns their hearts entirely away from God like they never have before, and they choose a godless murderer to take God's place as their leader because they have aspired to and they have idealized those qualities. Now, as we continue, the remainder of our passage today is going to focus on a parable of sorts that Jotham tells, who upon receiving word of what has happened after he escapes, he climbs the 800-foot slope of Mount Gerizim to interrupt the inauguration of his half-brother as king with a message, something of a, of a sermon. Uh, there's a, a triangular rock as you go up this mountain. There's a triangular rock which, which jets out the side of the mountain, which creates some amazing natural uh, scenery, uh, a beautiful pulpit, so to speak, uh, and the acoustics are amazing there. You can hear it from one side of the valley to the other. If somebody can yell loud enough, you can he- hear it from one side of the valley to the other. And so we continue the next few verses, verses 7 to 15. When it was told to Jotham, he went and stood on top of Mount Gerizim and cried aloud and said to them, Listen to me, you leaders of Shechem, that God may listen to you. The trees once went out to anoint a king over them, and they said to the olive tree, Reign over us. But the olive tree said to them, Shall I leave my abundance by which gods and men are honored and go hold sway over the trees? And the, tree, and the trees said to the fig tree, You come and reign over us. But the fig tree said to them, Shall I leave my sweetness and my good fruit and go hold sway over the trees? And the trees said to the vine, You come reign over us. But the vine said to them, Shall I leave my wine that cheers God and men and go hold sway over the trees? Then all the trees said to the bramble, You come and reign over us. And the bramble said to the trees, If in good faith you are anointing me king over you, then come and take refuge in my shade. But if not, let fire come out of the bramble and devour the cedars of Lebanon. There is one reason that Jotham does this. There's one reason that he lays out this this parable before the people. And that is to show that Abimelech's selection as their leader as king, was ludicrous. It was absolutely ridiculous and that he was in no way qualified to lead. Now, there are five characters in the story. There's the trees in general who are going from uh, individual tree to individual tree. There's the olive tree, the vine, uh, the fig tree, and the bramble. The bramble is, is really kind of like a, a thorn bush of a weed. Now, olive trees, fig trees, and vines were all valuable crops in the Israelite economy. They all produced something that was good for the people, good for the land. 
but none of them agrees. None of them uh, is willing to serve as uh, the, the one to reign over the trees because they're all content with what they've got. They're all content in the position where God has put them. And so finally, the trees ask this thorn bush to be their king. Now, this thorn bush is just a, it's a worthless weed. It doesn't give you a crop. It doesn't give you anything. Uh, it, it did nothing but get in the way and cause pain to anyone who would touch it. They were short, skinny plants, uh, which would have offered absolutely no shade whatsoever. Here are these tall trees asking this little weed to reign over them. But these trees, these, uh, these weeds, the, the thorn bushes, were also extremely flammable. That's the one thing maybe they would be good for, starting fire. But when they would be surrounded by more valuable trees, they'd put those trees at risk of being burned down. Not to mention, they'd make it very difficult to gather any fruit from the valuable trees around them. So we need to understand that there's a great amount of irony in these trees asking the most worthless weed they could possibly find to reign over them as king and for the thorn bush to then respond by inviting them into the shade, the non-existent shade of himself. The fact that the thorn bush has the potential to burn down even the legendary Cedars of Lebanon symbolizes the fact that even the most powerful people in the, in the area, even the most influential people of the land will be consumed by the devastation which will be brought upon them by electing an illegitimate and harsh leader. Now, there are really two points that Jotham is trying to make here with this story. First of all, he understands that only somebody who is completely degenerate and worthless would feel this great desire this burning desire to lord their power and authority over others. It's far more noble for somebody to find contentment in the position that God has placed them in. Now, that's not to say that someone should never desire to be in leadership. I'm not saying that at all. Rather, it's only to say that a completely degenerate person with no moral compass would seek to be in leadership for the sake of lording their power and authority over people who are actually making meaningful contributions to society. So in laying out the the qualifications for leading in the Bible, we find that that Paul had something to say about that in 1 Timothy 3, verses 1 to 5. He says, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to be If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. What's an overseer? It's a pastor, basically. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? So there are all these character qualities that the Bible lays out. And there are some in the beginning of Titus too. Paul says that the desire to lead God's people is a noble one. That's not, a, that's not a bad aspiration. There's nothing wrong with somebody desiring to be in a position of leadership, but there are only certain types of people who would be qualified to lead. And when you put it all together, you don't get a person uh, who, who has a personality profile that, you know, you put it next to Abimelech and, wow, you know, you've got a match. To the contrary, 
They look nothing like Abimelech. You don't get somebody who desires to lord power over the people, to lord their authority over the people. Rather, you get somebody who reflects dimly and imperfectly, I might add, somebody who reflects the heart of Christ and the heart of a shepherd. There's much to be said about the dangers of us as God's people looking to the world for a leader. And there's much to be said about what qualities we should look for in our leaders. Even though it might be a struggle, we have to strive to idealize character over charisma. You may have heard me say before, anybody can build a huge church. Absolutely anybody. Get a charismatic individual in front of a group of people, and boom, you can have a big church. It's not hard. The biggest church in America... Joel Osteen's church teaches the worst stuff you've ever, I mean, the prosperity gospel, health and wealth, yeah, all that stuff, and they're the biggest church in America, so it's not a challenge to build a big church. All you need is a charismatic individual, but we need to be looking for people with character, with godly character, with the character that scripture gives us. The second point to this parable is that those who seek to strive those who aspire for the honor of leading without having any character qualities which would qualify them for leadership will become a source of pure misery for those who appoint them and vice versa. Those who appoint such a leader will be the source of pure misery for the leader. So Jotham will now expound on this parable, driving into the hearts and minds of the people. Why does he tell it in a parable? Same reason Jesus did, because it helps people understand. They get a picture of what's going on. He's going to explain it now, just in case they they missed it by chance. Verses 16 to 21. He continues saying, Now therefore, if you acted in good faith and integrity, let's just stop right there. Is there any integrity here? None. If you've acted in good faith and integrity when you made Abimelech king, and if you have dealt well, in other words, fairly, with Jerubal and his house, and have done to him as his deeds deserved. For my father fought for you and risked his life and delivered you from the hand of Midian. And you have risen up against my father's house this day and have killed his sons, 70 men on one stone, and have made Abimelech, the son of his female servant, king over the leaders of Shechem, because he is your relative. If you then have acted in good faith and integrity with Jerubal and with his house this day, then rejoice in Abimelech and let him also rejoice in you. But if not, let fire come out from Abimelech and devour the leaders of Shechem and Beth Milo. And let fire come out from the leaders of Shechem and from Beth Milo and devour Abimelech. And Jotham ran away and fled and went to Be'er, not Beer, Be'er, and lived there because of Abimelech, his brother. So Jotham has done all that he possibly could to present the evidence, to present his case against Abimelech being appointed as king. And he has been heard. The people have heard him. The question is not whether they heard him, though. I'm going to sound like Dr. Phil here, but the question is if they were listening. 
Either way, the burden is on them to make a decision, and they will live with the consequences of whatever decision it is that they make. Nobody among them, nobody in the town, in in all of Shechem, can claim ignorance here. He was basically telling them, if you feel like you've acted with moral uprightness and you've been fair and just and right to, to Gideon's offspring in the way that you've selected Abimelech as your king, then I, I hope you're blessed by him, and I, I hope he's blessed by you. But if you haven't, and let's be honest, this has all been so completely illegal that no one could argue Uh, somebody could argue they they haven't even really sworn him in as king. This is Shechem making a a decision for the whole land. It's so illegal. But if you haven't, he's basically saying, then then may you get what you're asking for by playing with fire. May you be as completely burned by him as he is by those of you who are responsible for selecting him as king. To give us a slight preview of what's to come ahead. The people do not heed Jotham's advice. That's why he runs off to hide in Be'er. Rather than recognizing their mistake and repenting, they pridefully continue with the inauguration. They are so filled with pride, their collective conscience as a nation is so completely seared, they refuse to repent of what's been done here even though they've been fairly warned. The application for us is to simply keep our hearts sensitive enough to the Lord that we never reach the point where we can no longer feel or hear or respond to the call for personal or collective repentance ourselves. That's something that we have to be quick to do, quick to repent. Daily, daily. In his book, The Examined Life, Dr. Uh, psychiatrist Dr. Stephen Gross points to research which demonstrates just how completely reluctant and how hesitant people can be to respond properly when a fire alarm gets sounded. How many of you have been in a building where a fire alarm sounded? Almost everybody. If, you've got, if you went to school, they did fire drills, right? How many of you actually got scared by it? Yeah, that, that, that can happen, but uh, usually we don't feel scared by it. Maybe we get desensitized to it in school drills. I don't know. But what he showed is that people don't respond appropriately when a fire alarm is sounded. And research does indicate that instead of taking action to save ourselves when a fire alarm is sounded, people just generally don't respond. Instead, the average person is far more inclined to just go about their business unless maybe some further evidence is found, at which point it's often too late to respond. And even with further evidence, say, say you smell smoke or say a sprinkler comes on, a surprisingly high percentage of people won't change their course of action in time to avoid death. Further additional research has shown that when we do respond, those who, who actually do respond tend to follow old habits. In other words, we don't typically trust emergency exits. We almost always try to exit a room through the same door that we entered in. After a fire in the Beverly Hills Supper Club in Kentucky left 177 people dead, forensic experts discovered that many of the deceased, many who were burned in this fire, died after lining up to pay for their meal before leaving the building as it was burning to the ground. 
Gross concludes, quote, after 25 years as a psychoanalyst, I can't say that this surprises me. We resist change. Committing ourselves to a small change, even one that is unmistakably in our best interest, is often more frightening than ignoring a dangerous situation. We don't want an exit if we don't know exactly where it's going to take us, even, or perhaps especially, in an emergency. End quote. It was complete foolishness for the people to select a godless murderer to take God's rightful place as their leader. And it will have disastrous effects upon their nation. But God's people, this is a picture of God's people becoming just like the world in their character, in what they aspire to, in what they idealize. But there's a good deal of foreshadowing here. As the people chose to be led by a godless murderer rather than being led and reigned over by God himself. Didn't the same thing happen to Jesus? Jesus was the spotless, sinless lamb of God, the son of God, who was given a chance to be set free. Pilate put it to election. He let the people decide. And given the chance to set Jesus free or a murderer named Barabbas, the people chose to set Barabbas free. And so thus Jesus, as the only innocent, blameless, sinless person who's ever lived in all of history, went to the cross to die. And on the cross, the righteousness of Jesus was imputed to us, and our sins were imputed to him. He bore our sin, and he bore the wrath of God against our sin, so that anyone who would trust in him for salvation would not be consumed by God's holy wrath against sin, but would be given a new heart. They would be a new creation. Unlike a thorn bush, Jesus offers true refuge, true protection for all who will call upon him. The prophet Nahum writes in Nahum chapter, uh, chapter 1, verse 7, the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. And so our text today is really an invitation and a reminder to take refuge under the shelter of his wings. There is no sin that's too big for him to forgive. There is no sin that's too great for him to cover by his grace. John tells us this. If we confess our sins, he, that is Jesus, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Jesus is the one and only Son of God who didn't come to exalt himself, but who humbled himself, taking on flesh, coming not to shed any blood but his own, giving himself as a ransom. He didn't come to take anyone's life in order that he would have kingship. He came to give eternal life to anyone and to everyone who would believe unto him. The apostasy of Israel, the, the falling away, or at least the very poor decision-making of God's people does not negate God's sovereignty. When you look at this, it looks like evil men have won the day. It looks like God is completely absent, like it's just spiraled out of control. Could God have prevented this atrocity from taking place? Absolutely he could have, but he didn't. Nevertheless, 
as we're going to see as the story unfolds, he is in control. He is always in, sovereignly in control. Whether people acknowledge him or whether they turn their hearts as far as they possibly can away from him. The gods that the people have trusted in will be completely worthless on the day when trouble and judgment comes upon them. And I understand that on the surface, it looks like evil men have prevailed. I'm sure that Christians who lived in Nazi Germany were tempted to think the same way, to think the same thing too. And maybe if you look at our country, you're tempted to feel the same way. But God has promised to deal with all evil and all corruption. But that promise is on his time frame, not ours. He will. He's a sovereign, righteous, good God. He will deal with all evil and corruption when he knows the time to deal with it has come. And until he does, we must resist the temptation to live in accordance with the world's values. Even when rejecting those values is very unpopular and brings scorn upon us. Spiritual growth requires a desire to please God. Spiritual growth requires a willingness to obey God, to seek to please him more than we desire to please people. And spiritual growth requires the wisdom and the courage to take steps of repentance that lead to change. Steps that the people of Israel weren't willing to take. May our greatest desire be to faithfully follow the Lord Jesus, to pursue him above all things, and may he grant us the strength and the wisdom and the courage to do just that, especially when that means going against the current of the culture. And may our lives be spent seeking to glorify God in all that we do and in all that we are. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this picture of how corrupt the human heart is. Lord, we know that apart from your grace, we would be just as corrupt, if not more. And so we thank you, Lord, for saving us, for redeeming us. And Lord, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your forgiveness. We know that we've done nothing to earn it. We know that we don't deserve it. But Lord, you give it to us because you love us. And because without your grace, none of us would have a chance to even stand before you. None of us could bear your holy wrath against sin. So thank you for your mercy. I pray, Lord, that your mercy would give us transformed hearts and transformed minds, transformed lives, in order that we may live for your glory, spending our lives well, our time, our resources, our energy on things that glorify you rather than on temporary things that might give us pleasure or fleeting happiness. Teach us, O Lord, to value you and to follow you even when it's unpopular, no matter what the cost may be. May our lives bring glory. so much more
This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us, and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today. And keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.